our reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. If you um, want to find it in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1026. Of course, it's on the screens as well. Um, listen to the word of the Lord, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. When I was first given this passage to to preach on, um, I was told that the sermon was supposed to be titled, The God Who Is Lord. And I thought, what in the world does this passage have to do with God being Lord? I mean, aside from the word Lord appearing three times in the passage, it really doesn't seem to have anything to do with explaining what it might mean for God to be Lord. But then I realized a couple of things. First off, the whole point, the whole argument of Scripture, of of the whole of the Bible, is that God is Lord. And because of that... Any story in scripture that deals with instructions, that deals with commands being given, that deals with obedience being demanded, is a passage that you could use to preach about how God is Lord. Right? Because God is Lord, is that, that's rooted, it's rooted in creation. He's Lord because He's Creator. His Lordship over all is established in His creation of all. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, If God is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that he is the Lord of the whole universe. No part of the world is outside of his lordship. That means that no part of my life must be outside of his lordship. See, he, he roots lordship in creation, which seems like a very right Um, connection, but also a connection that is incredibly important because what it says is that we're not under the lordship of God because we're sinners. And we're not under the lordship of God because we're redeemed by him. Because sin and redemption are things that are after creation. But creation itself is what tells us because we're dependent creations. That's why we're under the lordship of God. Now, it may be the case Right? It may be the case that I follow um, his lordship because I've been redeemed. 
or that I don't follow his lordship because I'm a sinner, but neither one of those are the basis of his lordship. God is Lord of all because he is creator of all. And specifically, he's Lord over my life and your life because he created you and he created me. So the question we're asking from this passage this morning is not, is God Lord? The question that we're asking is, should we submit ourselves to the Lordship of God? Should we? This morning, as we look at this passage and examine the ways in which Joseph responds to God, here's what I want to do. I want to give you three reasons why you shouldn't submit to God as Lord. And then I want to give you one reason why you should. But before we jump in to those reasons, let's just consider what actually happens here. There are two phrases that I think are really important for you to see. The first is in verse 20. So look at verse 20. It says, but as he, Joseph, that's Joseph, considered these things, behold, and pay attention, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying... And here's what the angel of the Lord said. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The phrase that I want you to see is this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying. And then verse 24, it says this, when Joseph woke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Those two phrases show us that in the case of Joseph, he submitted to God as his Lord. He obeyed. He did what he was commanded to do. He recognized that God was Lord and he obeyed his commands. But what I want us to look at is the consequences of his obedience to see if it was really worth it. The passage is going to give us four consequences to submitting to God as Lord. Let me start by giving you three reasons why you shouldn't submit to God as Lord. The first thing we see in this passage is that submitting to God as Lord means that you will be looked down upon by other people. Right, you see, here in our passage, there's this scandal, the scandal of a pregnancy. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're intended for one another, but then Mary shows up pregnant. It's a scandal, a great scandal, right? One that verse 19 says is going to result in Joseph just ending the relationship. Joseph trying his best to, to save face, right? If she had cheated on him, the best way, the best way for him to save face, to sort of redeem himself would be to take back control of the relationship by just ending it, proving that he's the one who's actually in charge. But instead, God tells him to step in to the scandal. God says, step in to the pain, step in to the mockery. Walk through this shameful situation with Mary. Right? Not very many people are going to believe this story of a virginal conception. 
It's going to open them both up to some scorn, some harassment, some shame, but it's exactly what God asked him to do, and it's exactly what he does. We're told that he goes ahead, he marries her. No doubt he's looked down upon for his decision. Right, but here's the thing. Sometimes God asks us to do things that others will scorn. In fact, we're told in John 15 and 16 that it's not a question of whether or not things will result in scorn or hatred or persecution. The question is when. The question is how much will it result in? Jesus says that if we're really following him, the world will respond to us the same way that it responded to him, with hatred, with persecution. So much so, chapter 16 of John says that they'll even kill you and say that they're offering service to God. Just like they did to Jesus. So let me warn you. If you're thinking about submitting to God as your Lord, you should know that if you do it, you're opening yourself up. You're opening yourself up to the criticism and the hatred of this world. And that may be something that you already know. That may be something that you've already experienced. But it's a thing that you can expect for the rest of your life. If you submit to God, the hatred and the criticism of this world will come. Secondly, submitting to the lordship of God means that you are giving up your claim to justice. By that, what I mean is that if you submit to God as your Lord, you are no longer the one who gets to determine whether or not you are a righteous or a just person. You're no longer the one who gets to determine whether somebody else is an unrighteous or an unjust person. You give up your claim to justice when you submit yourself to God as Lord. Here's what we're told in verse 19. It says that Joseph is a just man. He's a righteous man. When he sees what's going to happen, he makes a plan, a just and a righteous plan. He's just going to put her away. He's just going to end their relationship, but he's going to do it quietly. How noble. It's his idea of justice to end the to divorce Mary quietly. He's not going to make a fuss about it. He's not going to expose her publicly or cause a scene. He's just going to put her away quietly. But God's justice is a higher justice. God calls Joseph to a higher form of goodness, a harder but a better righteousness. And I think that God similarly calls us to a higher form of justice. Right, certainly, certainly we see this in the commands that we ought to forgive those who have wronged us. Right, forgiveness in, in human understanding is never just. And yet we are told to look in the face of the person who has slapped us with love and forgiveness. The justice of God is a higher form than we are used to. Because in it, we are called to forgive as he has forgiven. We're called to love sacrificially as he has loved. Giving up your claim to justice means sacrificially loving just like Jesus do. And let's just think about that for a moment. 
Let's think about the bigger picture of what's happening here in this story. The birth of Jesus, right? Let's think about what Jesus is doing here. Let's think about how his actions line up with our vision of justice. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, is here in this story, coming into the world. And I don't know if you know this or not, but this world's pretty messed up. This world is full of sickness and famine and and natural disasters and, and death. And that's just if we're talking about physical realities, right? We also have emotional brokenness. We have relationships torn apart. We have spiritual hardships in our life. It is a messed up world. And that's the world that Jesus steps into. And just to be clear, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. right? God created this world perfectly with no pain with no brokenness. He created a world of peace where all things worked together in perfect harmony all the time. And it's the sin of humanity that broke it all apart. It's the sin of humanity that brings about hurt and destruction. And I think that if God operated on our level of justice... If God looked at justice the same way that we look at justice, here's what he would have done. He would have seen all the ways that humanity had destroyed his perfect, beautiful creation, and he just would have abandoned it. He just would have walked away. And maybe, maybe he would have tried to to sort of fix it up from the outside where he couldn't get hurt again by humanity, but he would never, he would never step into the mess. No, not on our level of justice. That's not the way it works. But it is something that God in his infinite love would do. And it's exactly, it's exactly what he did do. He stepped into the world. He experienced the brokenness itself. This is his love. Right? That's his justice that you would step in and experience the pain, suffer under physical pain, suffer under emotional hurt, suffer under relational brokenness. He suffered it all for us. He suffered it all with us. But that's not all, right? Because he went to death in our place. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. He bore the wrath of God fully and completely. He stood in our place. He took it for us. And in, in so doing, right, he didn't just win our forgiveness, but he, he won our acceptance. We stand before God, not just forgiven, but, but beloved, but fully favored by God. That's the justice of God. Humble, sacrificial love is the justice of God. This passage in Philippians 2. You've probably heard it. It explains this so well. I just want to read it to you. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. It says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
You see those two steps of humble, sacrificial love? He, he empties himself to become a man to walk around in this broken world. And then he humbles himself even more and he dies sacrificially in our place. This is the love of God and the love of God eternally works hand in hand with the justice of God. And I want you to see Philippians 2, verse 5. Here's what it says. Have this mind among yourselves. Act the same way. Give up your claim to justice, your personal perception of righteousness, and live according to the loving justice of God. And here's what that means. That means that you are called to step in to the pain and the hurt of other people's lives, even if you think they caused it themselves. You're called to step in and to walk with them through it. You're called to give up your own desires, even your own lives, for the sake of others. Submitting to God as Lord means you give up your claim to justice. You're no longer allowed to point out that other people deserve the situations that they're in. In the justice of God, there's no, you made your bed, now sleep in it. In the justice of God, it demands that you get into the bed of suffering with those who are hurting and you sacrificially give of yourself. So friends, here's what I'm telling you. Is God Lord? Yes, definitely yes. But let me caution you that submitting to him as Lord is not easy. It means putting yourself under the scornful eye of all those who oppose him. And let me be clear that there are people who oppose him both inside and outside of the church. And you are putting yourself under the scornful eye of all of them. So be ready. It's not easy because it means that you have to give up your own claim to justice that allows you to feel like you can just pass people over. To submit to God as Lord means that you will be called to do things that are hard to swallow. You'll be called to live according to a loving justice that often will seem to you unjust. But that's what's required to submit to God as Lord. One more caution. Submitting to God as Lord means that you will not always get what you want. And you will not always get what culture says you deserve. Let's consider it here in Joseph's experience. So he decides to go through with the marriage. He, he's going to go ahead and marry Mary. And he's going to treat, right, he's going to treat this son as, as his own son. He's taking on all of the shame that that relationship may require for him. And in that you would think that, that at the very least he would be given certain, certain honors, certain honors that are given to, um, to fathers, that are given to, to husbands. You would think that he would be given this personally important, this very culturally relevant job of naming his new son. No. Even that is withheld from him. 
before he even has the chance to say yes to whether or not he will obey God as Lord, it is made completely clear the name has already been chosen and you have to give it no questions asked. Right? Verse 21 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Not, not, hey, I'd like you to. You shall. It's a command. God reiterates, if I'm Lord, if I'm Lord over all, it means you are not in charge. You will do it. You shall do it. And Joseph obeys. He submits. He, verse 25 says that he calls his name Jesus. Jesus, I mean, Joseph submits to God as his Lord and honor that he no doubt desired is stripped from him. A privilege that society would have declared to him was his right is withheld. And maybe that seems like a minor thing. I mean, it's 2018, right? It seems like a pretty minor thing to not be able to name your child. So let me give you a better example. An example that may seem more relevant in 2018. Look again at verses 24 and 25. It says, When Joseph woke from his sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Mary and Joseph, they move from being betrothed to being married. That's what it means when it says he took his wife. Now they're married, but notice what happens after they're married. Or more importantly, notice what doesn't happen after they're married. It says they're married, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Right? Joseph goes ahead, he marries Mary, an act that the culture of that day and the the culture of our day as well would say brings with it certain conjugal benefits. But not for Joseph. Not for some time anyways, right? There's no honeymoon. There's no wedding night bliss for for him. He knew her not. When we submit to God as our Lord, there are things that we may desire that are just going to be completely withheld. There are things that culture says you deserve, that church culture says you deserve, and they may be taken from you for a time or maybe, maybe forever. And submitting to God as Lord requires that we say, okay. Submitting to God as Lord says that we will love Him and we will obey Him with every aspect of who we are. We'll hold nothing back in our submission to Him. As you may know, for the last three years, I've led the college ministry here at EP and uh, on campus at Anne Arundel Community College. And that work, that work that I and now, and now Frankie um, do together on campus at Anne Arundel Community College, uh, we do through an organization called the CCO. At the CCO, one of the things we say is this. We say we call college students to serve Jesus with their entire lives. So one of the greatest blessings of my job is I get to walk alongside some of the most incredible people as they try to figure out what it looks like to submit every aspect of their lives to the Lordship of Christ. And I want to tell you a story of one of those amazing people. 
He's a student that I met on campus almost exactly a year ago. Um, when I met him, he wasn't following Jesus, but Jesus was pursuing him. And so last August, after we met, I just began to pray. I began to pray that God would give me the chance to share the gospel with him. And then in January, we challenged our students to find someone, find a friend who doesn't know Jesus and read the gospel of John with them. And so one of our students asked this young man if they could read the gospel of John together. And he reluctantly agreed. He told me later that for a very long time, he had felt like God hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. But as he began to read about Jesus, he began to fall in love with him. And eventually he came to midweek, our Wednesday night service here, and he began to fall in love with Christians. That's important It's important at this point in the story that I tell you that this young man is gay. And the reason that he had always felt like God hated him and the reason he had felt like Christians hated him is because of hateful interactions that he'd had in his past. When he finished reading John, he asked his friend for a new book to read. His friend suggested Romans. If you're familiar with the first chapter of Romans, you may be able to guess what happened next. He read it, and immediately all of these fears about God hating him began to rush back. But by God's grace, instead of running away from community, he ran towards it. One Wednesday night, about 10 minutes before midweek started, he asked me whether that chapter meant that God hated him. And I want to tell you what I told him. First, I said, God doesn't hate you. God loves you very much. And then I said, we start in 10 minutes. So maybe we should find another time to have a longer conversation. (laughs) Which we did, which we did. But then, and this is what I want you to hear as well. I pointed him to these two amazing passages of scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says that we, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Thousands of years later, Jesus repeats this command, but just with a slight change. Listen to Jesus in Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. See, Jesus adds the mind, not just heart, soul, might, but heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you know why he added that? It's not just a coincidence. In between those two commands, something significant in world history happens. The Greeks come. And the Greeks invented the mind. Not the brain, but the mind and they, they added it to this list of, of sort of the, the aspects of your being. And they added that. So when Jesus comes, here's what he's doing. 
He's saying you are to love God with every aspect of your being, not just those three, not even just these four, but with every aspect. And if later on you decide that there's another aspect to who you are, that's in the list too. Love God with everything. And so I said to him that I think, I believe that if Jesus were here right now, because about a hundred to 150 years ago, something happened. About 150 years ago, we began to think about sexuality as a unique aspect of who we are. So I said, if Jesus was here right now, I think what he would say is this. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your sexuality. And so I encouraged the student. I said, hey, just start praying. Just pray that God would reveal to you what it looks like to love him with your sexuality along with all the other parts of who you are. And let me tell you two amazing things that happened over the next few weeks. First and foremost, most important, by God's grace, he repented of his sins, he believed in Jesus, he found forgiveness and new life. Praise God. And secondly, as he and I continued to talk and as he continued to try to figure out exactly what the Bible says about homosexuality, he made a second commitment. He told me one day that until he knew for sure what the Bible said on the topic, he was committing to a life of celibacy. Why? Because to him, it was more important to live in submission to and relationship with God than for his other desires to be fulfilled. Even if those desires seemed right and even if culture told him that he deserved them. So what about you? What about us? Right? These sorts of decisions and commitments to submit to God as Lord are hard What are the things that you're holding back out of a sense of entitlement, either from yourself or from culture? Maybe there's something in your life that you're just not sure. You're not sure if it's sin or if it's not. Would you be willing to give it up until you are sure? Because I'll tell you, whether it's sin or not, if you won't give it up, it's sin. John Stott puts it this way. He says, when Jesus is truly our Lord, he directs our lives and we gladly obey him. Indeed, we bring every part of our lives under his lordship, our home and family, our sexuality and marriage, our job or unemployment, our money and possessions, our ambitions and recreations. So let me warn you about submitting to God as Lord. It is hard. It will result in you being mocked. It will require you to give up your claim of justice. And it may require you to go without things that you think you deserve. So why would anybody, why would anybody submit themselves to God? Why would anybody call him Lord? Let me give you one reason from our passage here. Our obedience to the Lordship of God is the way in which God works out our salvation and the salvation of others. The reason that we ought to submit to God as our Lord is because in so doing, we are working out our salvation. 
Right now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that obedience to God's command is the basis of your salvation. No, the basis of your salvation is entirely the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it is in our submission to God as our Lord that our Jesus-based salvation begins to be worked out. It's how it's applied. It's how it's perfected. It's how it's made evident. It's how it's shared with the world around us so that they too would come to believe in Jesus. Right? It's here. It's in our text. It's the reason that Joseph is told to obey. He's told to obey, to take Mary as his wife, to raise this child as a son for this reason, because that son, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. The Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus is the very one who will save his people from their sins. And so in the life of Joseph, his submission to God as Lord is part of the story of God working out salvation. Both both the salvation of, of Joseph, but also the salvation of all who are the people of God. And the same is true for us. Our submission to God as Lord is the means by which he works out our salvation and not ours alone but the salvation of many others, right? And this is true. This is true in so many ways in every command that God gives us. But let me show you one way most in particular. Friend, there is no doubt. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no doubt that you have been commanded to share the gospel. You haven't just been commanded to support the sharing of the gospel. You have been commanded to personally be about the declaration of Jesus Christ as salvation. That is the command of scripture. And our submission to that command, when we do that, what happens is our own salvation begins to be worked out by God. And God begins to bring even more people to himself. And I think for me, it's really important that I put things into that perspective when God makes his desires known to me. Because when God tells me that I ought to do something, it is really easy for me to come up with a whole list of reasons why I should never do it. A whole list of reasons why following him just isn't a good idea. And certainly the ones we just mentioned are great examples. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be hated. I don't want that. I don't want for, I don't want to have to give up my claim to justice. I want to be able to feel like I'm doing what is right and that other people are wrong so that I can feel superior. I want that. I want what I want. And I don't want God to tell me I can't have it. Because I want it. But what God tells me is that when I submit to Him, He's making me into his image. He's working out my salvation and he is bringing people, people who I love dearly to salvation. So it is my prayer that in my own life, in your life as well, that we would choose God as our Lord always. I pray that we would allow ourselves to be used by God to, to exemplify the glories of salvation so that even more people would come to know him. Relationship with God is better. It is better than all of the sacrifices that we make to follow him. In fact, 
when we really understand, when we fully know God and the glories of His grace, we'll know that those sacrifices weren't sacrifices at all. Submitting to God as Lord may at times seem like you are being asked to give up great things, to take great losses for the sake of the kingdom. But in fact, we are being asked to lay down useless trivialities for that which is of highest value and worth. Is God Lord? Yes. Without question. The question is, will you submit to him as Lord? Friends, we must count the cost of following Christ, but we must count it correctly. So my prayer for all of us is that we, alongside the Apostle Paul, would be able to say that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, We thank you. Thank you that your, that your glory, that, that your presence is far greater, not even worth comparing to the sufferings of this present age. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not focus our attention on the things of this world, but on the glories of your kingdom. And as we do, Lord, we pray that we would submit every area of our life to you as Lord. We know that your way is better. So we pray, Lord, that we would not pridefully cling to our own desires, but that we would humbly submit our lives to you. Thank you, Lord, for your work of salvation. You've done it for us. You've done it for all who would believe in you. Lord, would you bring many more to yourself, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.